This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Economist, offering authoritative insight and opinion on international news, politics, business, finance, science, and technology. Stay tuned for the go-to magazine for great minds around the globe, right here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is The Economist, and I'm your reader, Libby Ash, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from the holiday edition of The Economist, dated December 23rd, 2023, through January 5th, 2024. And now I'll begin with Jimmy Lai, Democrat in the Dock, Hong Kong. An unfair trial begins in Hong Kong. It has been more than three years since the police in Hong Kong arrested Jimmy Lai and stuck him in Stanley Prison. But as Mr. Lai charges of sedition and colluding with foreign forces, it felt like the culmination of a much longer saga. The pro-democracy media tycoon has spent decades challenging the administration in Hong Kong and the national government in Beijing. They, in turn, consider Mr. Lai a traitor and have been relishing the chance for more payback. Revered by many Hong Kongers for his bravery, Mr. Lai has led a rags-to-riches life. At the age of 12, he escaped Mao Zedong's China by stowing away on a boat. Once in Hong Kong, he worked his way up from factory dog's body to clothing impresario and media mogul. The government in Beijing forced him out of the garment industry in 1994 after he wrote a column in one of his magazines calling Li Peng, China's prime minister at the time, the son of a turtle's egg. A rather nasty insult. In 1995, Mr. Lai founded Apple Daily, a popular tabloid that mixed tittle-tattle with criticism of the government. By 2021, the authorities in Hong Kong had had enough. Acting under the national security law, they froze the paper's assets, raided its offices, and arrested several of its leaders. People across Hong Kong queued to buy the paper's farewell edition. The charges against Mr. Lai are based in part on articles in Apple Daily that called for international sanctions against Chinese and Hong Kong officials. Prosecutors argue that this amounted to collusion with foreign forces. Six of the paper's former staff members pleaded guilty to the charge in 2022. The government in Hong Kong has gone to great lengths to ensure that Mr. Lai's trial goes its way. It prevented him from appointing his preferred barrister, a Briton named Tim Owen. The fight over that contributed to the trials being delayed for months. Paul Lam, Hong Kong's justice minister, insisted that Mr. Lai be tried not by a jury, but by three judges approved by John Lee, the city's chief executive. This is now the norm in national security cases. Chris Tang, the security minister, has already proclaimed that the proceedings will prove Mr. Lai is bad. The government likes to boast that it has a 100% conviction rate in national security trials. In 2022, Mr. Lai was sentenced to five years and nine months in prison for fraud, a verdict denounced by human rights groups. Now he looks set to spend the rest of his life behind bars. America, Britain, and the European Union have condemned the trial. Mr. Lai's legal team hopes this will help, but the defendant is said to be reconciled to his fate. Christmas in the Holy Land, cancelled, Jerusalem. Christian numbers in Bethlehem and Jerusalem continue to dwindle. 
This year's nativity scene in Bethlehem depicts a baby swaddled in a Palestinian kefaya, a checkered headdress, resting on a heap of rubble. It is hard to spot the wise men, frankincense, or myrrh. The war in Gaza has prompted a drastic scaling back of celebrations in the West Bank. No banquets, no traditional parades of Boy Scouts, no pilgrims. Bethlehem is silent. Christmas in the land where Jesus Christ was born has, in effect, been canceled. Gaza's dwindling community of Palestinian Christians has been hard hit since October 7th. At least 16 were killed in an air raid that damaged the church of St. Porphyrias, Gaza City's oldest. Pope Francis called Israel's actions in Gaza terrorism after a Christian mother and daughter were shot dead as they sheltered in a church compound. Church leaders say half of Gaza's Christians have fled since the war began. Instead of Christmas carols, barbershops in Jerusalem's Christian Quarter are blaring out nonstop coverage of the horrors in Gaza on the Al Jazeera TV channel. No one is in the mood for celebrating, says Munther Isaac, pastor of Bethlehem's Lutheran Church, but maybe we're praying even more. Even before the latest war, the fortunes of Christians in the West Bank, including Jerusalem, were fast declining. Gaining permits from the Israeli authorities to travel in and out of Bethlehem and Jerusalem is unpredictable, even for the clergy. Moreover, say Christians, a violent Jewish settler movement is bullying them more and more, with impunity. Cut off from Jerusalem by Israel's separation wall and by a string of settlements, Bethlehem is isolated. Jewish settlers in the Arab eastern side of the old city of Jerusalem are only about 1,000 strong, but they have become more aggressive and are implanting themselves more strategically to isolate both Christian and Muslim Palestinians in the city and its vicinity. Meanwhile, the Armenian community is fighting what it says is an existential battle to keep part of its domain in the old city. A land deal with an Israeli developer puts the Armenian presence and Christian presence in Jerusalem in danger, says the Armenian patriot Bulldozers have already moved in. Youssef Dallaire of the World Council of Churches in Jerusalem explains that if a Palestinian Christian in Jerusalem marries a West Banker, the spouse cannot live in the city without a permit that can take a decade to get. But if the couple moves to the West Bank, any residency rights in Jerusalem may be forfeited. Before the war in 1967, some 24,000 Christians lived in the city. Now, there are only 9,000. The mindset in Israel is that Jerusalem is ours, says Daniel Seidman, an Israeli lawyer and expert on the city. It's the most serious crisis since 1948. The exodus of Palestinian Christians looks unlikely to be reversed, he suggests. You'll probably find more Jerusalem Christians living in Illinois or Michigan than in East Jerusalem. Sudan, a nightmare worsens, Dakar. A supposed haven falls into the hands of a genocidal militia. The gunfire on the outskirts of Wad Madani, one of Sudan's biggest cities, began at dawn on December 15th. Panicked civilians began to flee. The attack by fighters from the Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF, a paramilitary force, was met with airstrikes by the Sudanese Armed Forces, or the SAF, the regular army. After a brief lull in which the SAF claimed victory, gun-toting militiamen then stormed into the city center. As they did so, SAF soldiers abandoned their posts and slunk away to the south. 
the fall of Wad Madani, about 200 kilometers southeast of Khartoum, the capital, comes five years after pro-democracy street protests erupted that eventually forced out Sudan's longtime dictator, Omar al-Bashir. But Sudan's political transition was derailed in 2021 by a coup staged jointly by the RSF and the SAF. In April, their edgy alliance collapsed into civil war. Some 7 million people have been displaced within Sudan. Another 1.4 million have fled to neighboring countries, many to Chad after genocidal violence against the Mazalit, a black African tribe by the RSF and allied militias. The latest fighting is worsening a humanitarian catastrophe. As many as 300,000 people have fled Gazira State, of which Wad Madani is the capital, in just four days, the UN estimates. Many are fleeing for a second time since nearly 500,000 people had escaped there, mostly from bloody chaos in Khartoum. Cities further south where they may now flee may not be safe for long. Those remaining in Wad Madani fear atrocities by the RSF, which has a record of carrying out massacres and rapes and air raids by the SAF. Wad Madani was also an important staging point for sending aid and was one of Sudan's few remaining medical hubs. No longer. Scores of badly disabled babies who had been relocated from Khartoum after their orphanage had been caught in the fighting are again in desperate need. The city had been considered an SAF stronghold. That it fell so swiftly piles the pressure on General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the SAF's head. After the city's fall, rumors swirled of a coup against him, which the SAF seemingly sought to deny. Instead, the SAF announced an investigation into why its troops fled the city. In fact, the army has been in retreat for months. General Buran himself left Khartoum for Port Sudan in the northeast, while the RSF seized control of most of the big cities in Darfur on the west. SAF has essentially not won a major battle of this war, explains Ellen Boswell of Crisis Group, a think tank, who is based in Nairobi. One reason for the RSF's success is backing from the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, which has reportedly been shipping weapons to its via Chad. The UAE denies this. Egypt, which General Buran hoped would prop up his side, has failed to keep pace in part as a result of its own mounting economic woes. Many worry Sudan could end up like Libya, split into chunks controlled by rival factions. It could get even worse. The RSF may try to seize much more of the country, perhaps all of it. What may be left standing in Sudan is unclear, cautions Mr. Boswell. The RSF's next move may be to try to seize all the major southern cities. Still, the RSF could get bogged down in the south, and the SAF is not its only rival. In November, many feared a big battle for El Fashir, the capital of North Darfur state. That has not yet materialized, despite some skirmishes, in part because other former rebel groups announced that they would defend the city from the RSF. Diplomacy has plainly foundered. On December 9th, the regional summit failed again. Talks may have a chance if the RSF gets stuck or if it surges dramatically forward and the SAF is forced to sue for peace. Even then, a deal would be hard to strike. Western governments have been distracted by crises elsewhere. Regional ones have been just as ineffective. There hasn't been a major ceasefire push since the first few weeks of the war, laments Mr. Boswell. It's been a giant mess. Make America Godly Again. Did God choose Trump? A surprising number of Christians believe so. Say the word apostle and people think of stern, halo-crowned men with names like Peter or John. Not a bloke called Greg from Mississippi. 
Unlike the first apostles, who were partial to robes of stained glass windows or anything to go by, Greg prefers jeans and cowboy boots. Another difference, Greg did not attend the Last Supper. He is very much alive. An affable, burly man with a shaved head, Apostle Greg Hood can often be found at the premises of an organic, gluten-free snack food company in Franklin, Tennessee. Mr. Hood runs his ministry and school, Kingdom University, from this warren of offices. The owners of the snack food firm are friends. On a recent Friday night, he stands behind a lectern in a repurposed garage at the back of the building. Mr. Hood is teaching a class on the theology of his sect a charismatic Pentecostal movement bent on making America a Christian nation. Behind him are a whiteboard and signs advertising the school's various colleges, business, government, and kingdom studies. His 15 students are a mix of black and white. Most are middle-aged and insulate themselves from the air conditioning with shawls and flannel shirts, but a few are young women in ripped jeans. They sit at folding tables with textbooks, laptops, and tiny plastic goblets containing a few drops of communion wine. A camera on a tripod streams the seminar to people watching online. The class opens with a prayer and the strange, sibilant sounds of students speaking in tongues. We have learned that Jesus did not come to give us a religion, right, Mr. Hood says. He only promised us a kingdom. As he quotes from the Gospel of Matthew, students flip open their Bibles to the relevant passage, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Mr. Hood asks the class to complete the verse. Your what come? Your kingdom come, the students say. Mr. Hood nods his head. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In a folksy tone, Mr. Hood gives this familiar verse an unusual gloss. God's not religious. He's a government man, if I can put it like that, he guffaws. He's a king, a ruler. His authority does not end at the church gates. It flows through the halls of government also. Or at least it ought to. America was founded as a Christian nation and is destined to become one again. This does not mean that we're looking to take over the government, but believers must elect righteous politicians courageous enough to shake all the structures that are not kingdom, to dismantle those structures. That might mean voting for somebody who is not a churchgoer. I don't necessarily want a Christian president. We don't need a Sunday school teacher. We need a bull in a china shop, says Mr. Hood. And we got one, says a student wearing a baseball cap with a cross on it. Amen, agrees Mr. Hood. For years, scholars have tried to explain why conservative Christians so avidly support Donald Trump, a man who is more intimately acquainted with the seven deadly sins than the contents of the Bible. Some chalk it up to Mr. Trump's conservative policies. He appointed the judges who gave back to the states the power to ban abortion. Others think they share Mr. Trump's nostalgia for America's past, an era when white Christians dominated the country. And yet another factor may also have played a role, the belief that Mr. Trump was anointed by God to lead the country. In 2016, a self-styled prophet named Lance Walno had a vision. The next president would be a Latter-day Cyrus, the Persian emperor who, though not Jewish, was chosen by God to free the Jews from captivity. Mr. Walno proclaimed Mr. Trump, then a Republican candidate, the Cyrus of his dreams. The message was, even though he's not evangelical, Trump is sent by God to deliver conservative Christians back from cultural exile, says Matthew Taylor of the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies in Maryland. 
Mr. Walno and Mr. Hood are leaders of a Christian revival known as the Apostolic Movement or New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR, which emerged in the 1990s. Mr. Hood denies belonging to the NAR, yet espouses its beliefs. Its adherents believe that God wants them to build his kingdom on earth. Hindering them are demons who govern vast swaths of the planet. To use a metaphor favored by Mr. Walno, these demons control seven mountains, each symbolizing a sphere of life, family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. To vanquish the demons, believers must reform the church. The bureaucracy of Protestantism must go. The church must be ruled instead by independent, supernaturally gifted apostles and prophets, as it was in its early days. This is controversial. The church has not recognized apostles since the first crop appointed by Jesus, and Protestants broke with Catholicism because they believe spiritual authority resided in Scripture, not a caste of intermediaries. Champions of Latter-day Apostles and Prophets all retort that only these figures have the charisma, dynamism, and spiritual authority to kindle the fervor necessary to best the demons, says Mr. Taylor. By waging spiritual war against Satan's demon generals, apostles and their flocks will recapture the seven mountains and plant God's flag in America. It is hard to measure the size of this loosely organized sect. And yet there are indications that it is popular. Non-denominational churches, a category to which the apostolic movement belongs, are the only branch of Christianity in America that is growing. Harvest International Ministry, a network launched by an apostle nearly 30 years ago, claims to have more than 25,000 affiliated congregations around the world. The Southern Baptist Convention, the largest religious body in America, in terms of number of congregations, still has twice as many churches in America, but it was founded more than 175 years ago. Many Americans agree with the apostolic movement's tenets. A survey in 2023 by Paul Jupe of Denison University in Ohio found that a quarter of Americans believe in modern-day prophets and prophecies. In a Pew poll in 2021, more than one-third of white evangelicals said the government should stop enforcing the separation of church and state. To that end, apostles engage in political activism. They shun the Democratic Party, membership is a form of demonic worship, Mr. Hood has written, and cultivate ties with Republicans. Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, are affiliated with the movement. Mr. Trump is central to its plans. During the presidential campaign of 2016, Mr. Walno observed that Mr. Trump had already climbed the mountains of media and business and said God had foretold that he would also conquer the government peak. The rest of the apostolic movement quickly endorsed Mr. Trump. Several of its leaders advised him during his presidency and formed a spiritual strike force called POTUS Shield to protect him from Satan. Many prophesied that he would win re-election in 2020, and their followers believed them. In a survey conducted by Mr. Jupe shortly before the election, three in ten Americans believed Mr. Trump was anointed by God to become president. After Mr. Trump lost, an apostle named Dutch Sheets went on tour of swing states, dubbed Operation Valkyrie, to prevent Satan from taking over the nation. Through late November and early December, Dutch Sheets and his traveling band of prophets build this fever pitch of charismatic anger and assurance that God is going to intervene, recounts Mr. Taylor in a podcast on the subject. Much of the rhetoric at these prayer meetings sounded like a call to arms. 
the militiamen and the kingdom of God are rising up in this hour and expose the neck, swing the sword, finish the job. Hundreds of thousands of viewers watched live streams of these rallies in late 2020. On January 6, 2021, many heeded the call. Christian nationalism was the central driving force that day, wrote Andrew Seidel, an expert, in testimony to Congress. Prophets battled the evil spirits embedded in the Capitol by praying, their voices amplified on a PA system. Protesters blew shofars, ram's horns, which they believe can summon the forces of heaven. Many protesters brandished flags emblazoned with the words, an appeal to heaven, the apostles' rallying cry for a Christian conquest of America. Neither Mr. Sheets nor Mr. Hood was in the Capitol when rioters stormed it, but they spoke at a spiritual warfare conference call with 4,000 apostles and their disciples. America, you are being saved, Mr. Hood declared. You're rising up, you're standing up, you're coming out of the ashes. His voice a battering ram of righteousness. This is the day I have promised you, says the Lord. Awakening is here. Blessed are the meek. I don't know if you've heard of the Black Robe Regiment, Mr. Hood says to the class. This was a group of 18th century ministers who preached in favor of independence from the British. Like revolutionary era supermen, they wore the uniform of the Continental Army under their robe, claims Mr. Hood, and they'd lay their pistols on their pulpit as they preached. Maybe we need a little bit of that going on. These guys, after they would preach, they would lead their men into the battle against the crown of England. How many people in pulpits today are willing to stand up and to speak what we believe is righteous? A student asks a question. Earlier, Mr. Hood had entreated his students to love your neighbor as yourself, even if they don't know God. The student wondered, how do we love and be like the Black Robe Regiment? Because someday there's going to be a war. Mr. Hood agreed, no matter the outcome of the presidential election in 2024, we're going to see violence in our nation. But, he said, politics should never drive us to blows. When another student wondered how to respond to what she considered the unjust imprisonment of the January 6th rioters, Mr. Hood continued to preach restraint. You don't get angry. You speak out, but you don't commit violence. The student's confusion is telling. Many apostles disavow violence, but then appear to encourage it. Earlier, Mr. Hood had told students, when you see turmoil on the streets and you see cities burning, fight for the heart of the king. On January 6th, Mr. Hood seemed to celebrate the rioters for doing God's work. Later, Mr. Hood clarifies that when he speaks of fighting, he means against Satan. I don't believe God approved of the riot at the Capitol at all, but he sees how he could be misunderstood. We have to really be careful. I know the language can be kind of funny sometimes, and sometimes this is a fault of ours. Sometimes we don't understand when we're talking in more public places that those who are not Christians don't understand Christianese. That distinction between spiritual and temporal combat was certainly lost on the January 6th rioter who attacked police with a flagpole. Hanging from the pole was the Appeal to Heaven banner. It was also lost on the one who wore the flag like a cape as he entered the Capitol. By day's end, it was spattered with blood. The Economics of Technology, a short history of tractors in English. What the tractor and the horse tell you about generative AI. It was the chat GPT of its day. Come and see the tractors, entreated an article in the Prairie Farmer in 1915, advertising a trade show in Illinois showing off the new tech. It will mark a new epoch in farming, the farmer's liberation from sole dependence on the weary horse.
Tractors are more economical than horses, insisted an agricultural expert in a government report around the same time. Not only making farm work cheaper, but easier. The tech clearly impressed people, but it also scared them. One American observer watching a tractor in England said it walked over the earth like some huge animal, puffing and snorting. Tractors promised a revolution in American agriculture, an industry which in 1900 employed about one-third of workers and produced about 15% of GDP. Today, many people expect another revolution linked to developments in generative artificial intelligence, or AI. Like then, the general public today view the technology with a mixture of awe and fear. Goldman Sachs, a bank, reckons generative AI could raise annual global GDP by 7% over 10 years. Some economists now talk about explosive growth. Others say that before long, jobs will be eliminated in their millions. And yet the economic history of the tractor casts doubt over these predictions. Over the sweep of history, the tractor has indeed had an immense impact on people's lives. But it conquered the world with a whimper, not a bang. Historians disagree about who invented the tractor. Some say it was Richard Trevithick, a British engineer in 1812. Others credit John Froelich, working in South Dakota in the early 1890s. Still more point out that the word tractor was little used until the start of the 20th century, and that only then did people start seriously talking about the average farmer buying one. At the time, horses and mules pulled around an impressive array of farm implements, from plows to reapers. The horses faced up to a bigger, more powerful beast. You can put yourself in the shoes of an early 20th century horse by visiting Jean Jones Tractor Museum in Millbrook, a small city in rural Alabama, which contains dozens of machines, including farmalls and fords from the 20th century. The tractors are beautiful, and not just because Mr. Jones has lovingly restored them, painting them in a variety of rich auburn reds. They're also intimidating. Some weigh thousands of pounds. Others have cranks to start the engine, which can break your arm if you don't know what you're doing. With hindsight, it's clear that the tractor had profound impacts. It meant that a given quantity of farmland could feed more people. Tractor-owning farmers no longer needed to pasture horses, each of which required about three acres of cropland for feed each year. More intensive farming also had downsides. Some researchers have argued that tractors helped bring about the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Their powerful plowing techniques damaged the topsoil that had once prevented wind erosion. The economic impact eventually became clear, too. The greater efficiency afforded by tractors allowed farmers to expand their operations as they could manage more land with the same number of workers. Farms began to grow in size, with smaller family farms giving way to larger mechanized operations. According to one estimate, by 1960, the average American farm was 58 acres, equivalent to the land occupied by 10 big Walmarts today, larger than it would have been without tractors. The tractor also reduced the number of workers needed to produce food by about 2 million, or 25% of farm employment, in 1960. All these improvements added up. In a paper published in 2012, Richard Steckel and William White, two economists, argue that by the mid-1950s, farm mechanization had raised American GDP by about 8%. And yet, for much of the first half of the 20th century, tractor-induced changes did not feel very profound. This is because the tractor diffused across the American economy slower than one of Mr. Jones's old Fords trying to cross a waterlogged field.
1920, despite rave reviews in The Prairie Farmer, just 4% of American farms had a tractor. Even by 1940, only 23% had them. In the 1910s, opportunistic businessmen had piled into the tractor-making business, hoping to make a quick buck, just as every second tech firm in Silicon Valley now describes itself as AI first. Many had no customers and were forced to close. The horse endured for a surprisingly long time. For much of the 1930s, the total productive capacity of equine animals, quite literally horsepower, across the American farm still exceeded that of tractors. In 1945, a quarter of farms reported both draft animals and tractors. The slow diffusion of the tractor produced slow productivity gains. The data are spotty, but in the first half of the 20th century, annual productivity growth in agricultural probably never exceeded 3%. That 8% GDP effect is real, but it made itself felt only over the decades. Explosive growth? Hardly. The tractor's plotting progress is one of the big puzzles of economic history. If they were so good, why did farmers not buy them more quickly? They were not Luddites who resisted new technologies on principle. True, anti-tractor lobby groups such as the Horse Association of America warned that buying one would land the farmer an unimaginable death. But in the 1910s and 1920s, many tractorless farmers did own cars, suggesting that they were willing to try new tech. In 1917, Power Farming, a journal, published letters from 15 farmers who used tractors. They were probably solicited, but these letters urged others to follow suit. Three reasons explain why the triumph of the tractor took so long. First, early versions of the technology were less useful than people had originally believed and needed to be improved. Second, adoption required changes in labor markets, which took time. And third, farms needed to transform themselves. Take capabilities first. The early tractors of the 1900s were behemoths. They were useful for plowing and a few other things, but not for cultivating fields of growing crops. Many early models had metal wheels, not tires, so they got stuck in the mud. They were also costly. Between 1910 and 1940, however, the machines became both more versatile and smaller, making them suited to a wider range of tasks. In 1927, John Deere released a power lift for its models. This meant that a farmer could pull a lever to raise an implement, such as a plow, rather than doing it manually. Rubber tires came along in about 1933. For a long time, the general purpose tractor could not mechanize corn and cotton harvests, one reason why the area in which Mr. Jones lives was one of the slowest to adopt tractors. But by the 1920s, America had the corn picker, followed by the mechanical cotton picker after the Second World War. By the end of the fighting, tractor pieces had also fallen from their level in 1910, after adjusting for inflation by about one half. Wages were the second factor. Horse technology was labor-intensive. Horses require feeding, cleaning, and medical care, even when they're not working. In the early 1930s, during the Depression, average real wages in agricultural fell. So, for many farmers, it became easier to hire someone to manage a horse. You could always fire them, and then it was to splurge on a tractor. But by the Second World War, labor shortages mounted, leading real wages to rise quickly. Suddenly, machines seemed like a better deal. The third factor was corporate restructuring. Tractors worked best on big farms, where the farmer could spread out the expense of a huge upfront investment. As a result, enlarging the size of their holdings and buying a tractor were two sides of the same coin. 
In a survey in Illinois in 1916, for instance, farmers who used tractors profitably also talked about increasing their acreage. But growing a farm takes time. A farmer looking to expand had to gather the necessary capital and then negotiate the purchase with the owners. The history of the tractor hints at how quickly generative AI may take over. At present, most AI models still have metal wheels, not rubber tires, and they are insufficiently fast, powerful, or reliably to be used in commercial settings. Over the past two years, real wages have hardly grown as inflation has jumped, limiting companies' incentives to find alternatives to labor. And companies have not yet embraced the full-scale reorganization of their businesses and in-house data necessary to make the most of AI models. No matter how good a new technology may be, society needs a long, long time to adjust. Women and DIY. Sisters are doing it for themselves. Why more women are picking up power tools. It's very creepy down here, says Hannah Lee Duggan as she leads the way into her basement. It looks like the staging area for a saw trap. There are drills and nail guns neatly arranged on a shelf. The walls are made of meter-deep stone. There are no windows. We are in the middle of the woods. Hannah is not a serial killer. Far from it. She's known for something impeccably wholesome. She fixes up her home and posts about it. She is one of a growing number of female do-it-yourself influencers. All over America, women are upping tools. In Virginia, Cass Smith, who posts videos of her projects on Instagram under the handle Cass Makes Home, is building herself an office in her basement from two Ikea dressers. In Utah, Elise Hunter, known as Hunter Soft Happiness on TikTok, is hand-painting flowers to make wallpaper for the playhouse that she's built for her two young daughters. It's not just homeowners who are at it. On the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Shelby Van Hoy has wallpapered the dining room ceiling in the rented flat she shares with her husband, her son, and an enormous dog. How big is this trend? The Bureau of Labor Statistics conducts an annual time use survey in which it asks thousands of Americans what they do with their days. Taking interior maintenance, repair, and decoration as a proxy for DIY, it finds that Americans, in general, are doing less of it now than two decades ago. But drill down into the data and another trend becomes clear. Men still do more DIY than women, but over the past five years, the time that men spend on it has remained flat, while women have put in 60% more. This is partly because the number of women reporting that they do DIY has risen by nearly 20%, but also because they're devoting more time to it. In 2017, female DIYers reported spending nearly four hours per weekend on projects. In 2022, it was almost five. Much has been made of the post-pandemic boom in DIY. James Laurie, the then boss of Stanley Black & Decker, a maker of tools that old-fashioned folks might deem manly, reported that after a dearth of activity in April 2020, sales had lipped 30-40% to year-on-year in early summer as people stuck at home, discovered, or rediscovered DIY. We enjoyed an unprecedented surge in North American retail, he said in January 2021. Far less has been made of the fact that it was women driving this surge. During the pandemic, women who do DIY on the internet started to get famous. Elise found viral success with her videos after she joined TikTok in late 2020. 
An early post showed her recreating a ceramic lamp with knobs on it, which retailed for $695 from an old light, some wooden beads, and superglue. It ended up looking uncannily like the spike protein structure of the coronavirus. Shelby recalls how she and her husband moved to New York just before the virus started spreading. It was when I started making over that apartment that things really took off, she says. Something similar happened with Hannah. In September 2020, when everyone was obsessing about avoiding contact with other people, she posted a video with the title, I'm moving into the woods alone. That, she says, was when she blew up. She now has one million subscribers on YouTube. There's much about these women doing DIY that varies. Their aesthetics, for one. Shelby's style is old and European-inspired. Elise's home is a kaleidoscope of pastel girly-hued paints and wallpapers. Hannah, whose house looks increasingly like a fairy tale cottage and who adopted a litter of orphaned mice, is often compared to a Disney princess by her followers. Like Cinderella, if only her fairy godmother had conjured her up a DeWalt drill instead of a ball gown. They seem to fall into three broad buckets. Most, from an anecdotal scroll, seem to be mothers of young children making over their family homes, like Elise and Cass. Think of them as literal home makers who build custom wardrobes in addition to caring for their families. They're typically making over the single-family suburban homes they own. And then there are those, like Shelby, who specialize in renter-friendly upgrades. Their tools are mostly things that resemble giant stickers, peel-and-stick wallpaper, which can be slapped up and peeled off with relative ease, faux marble contact paper, which can convert a drab laminate countertop into something that looks, from a distance, like a $3,000 marble slab. Shelby, who rents her two-bedroom flat, is queen of the command strip, a sticky Velcro-type contraption that can stick things to walls without marking them. There are hundreds in here, she says, as she gestures to the ceiling medallions, the tile behind the fireplace, and the paneling she's affixed to the walls, all of which, she assures me, could be Velcroed on and off at will. Still, in a city apartment without much space to store power tools, most of the manipulation she does of her home is manual. Every dowel you see in here, I sawed them all by hand. The most radical DIYers seem to have taken the DIY approach to their entire lives. Hannah started doing projects to kit out a van to live in as she traveled around America. She has since bought two cabins, a house, and lots of tools to do them up. Rachel Metz, a.k.a. Living to DIY, quit her job when she found she'd cancer and now renovates full-time. Nearly all DIY sisters seem to have three things in common. First, their original rationale was partly economic. Cass has written that her vision started becoming bigger, but her budget was still small. Second, they're impatient. Elise has written that she seized the power tools when she no longer wanted to wait for her husband to be free to help her. When I have an idea, I just want to get going, says Shelby. Third, they learned a ton about DIY from YouTube. Various changes over the past 70 years have made it easier for women to DIY. Gender roles are less rigidly defined than in the 1950s and 1960s when the boys learned woodwork and girls were taught to bake cookies. Power tools, which became popular in the 1980s, made it simpler to drill and saw without male muscles. And DIY-themed media have provided inspiration. Before the rise of renovation reality shows like HGTV, 
Home and Garden Television, in the 1990s, people would see inside the homes only of friends or fictional TV characters. Reality real estate shows let them peek into thousands more. Instagram now allows them into the home of anyone who cares to share. YouTube videos, which took off in the 2010s, made it easier to learn essential skills. Rather than reading a DIY manual full of jargon, you can look up a task and watch someone do it. Clips of women doing DIY appear popular. Most projects are a neat story of challenge and aesthetically pleasing triumph. People love a transformation video, says Hannah. They also love to watch a woman struggle. Many female DIY influencers lean into the juxtaposition of girliness and power tools. Just go for it, girl, shouts Elisa's Instagram bio. Baby girls in one arm, power tools in the other. Others are subtler about it. I don't mean to get on my soapbox or anything, says Hannah, but it is empowering. To test this notion, your correspondent picked up a nail gun for the first time. She pressed it against a plank, felt the vibration, and heard the whirring. As she grabbed the trigger, she understood how addictive a hobby this could become. Nothing is quite like the thrill of shooting a nail at high velocity into a slab of wood. Your correspondent is hooked. She adds a Brad Nailer to her Christmas wish list. Lori Santos, a professor at Yale, argues that people often think she'll be happier with a better job or a bigger house, but enduring happiness comes from more trivial-seeming things, like interacting with loved ones or taking the time to feel thankful for doing a job well. Other research also suggests that completing little projects is a source of joy, and DIY is filled with small to-dos, buying materials, cutting them to length, nailing them together. Making one's home prettier may seem like a superficial pursuit, but as night falls on a Midwestern wood, your correspondent wonders. Hannah is building a fire in a fire pit she dug herself. We're tired from the simple toil of cutting, staining, and putting up boards. Soon we'll sleep on beds that she built from scratch. Women like Hannah, in making their environment more beautiful or functional, have achieved something greater. They've built beautiful lives. French style, healing power, Paris. Why French women no longer wear stilettos. The high-heeled shoe, popular among men in pre-revolutionary France, is losing favor among women on the streets of Paris. The once familiar click of stiletto on cobble is giving way to the silence of rubber soles. Today, fashion writers offer French women advice on les chunky boots, heavy black groove sole footwear. Trainers, once derided in the beau courtiers as an American abomination, are now a daily feature in Parisian cafes and offices. Nearly half of French women, according to Paul, do not know how to walk in high heels. What is going on? Modern France helped to make the female high heel iconic. Roger Vivier, a French designer, is considered to be the godfather of the stiletto, having designed the aiguille, or needle, heel back in 1954. He was the first to insert a metal rod into the heel, stiffening its structure and stretching the female stiletto. The brand still calls stiletto heels tools of unstoppable seduction. Christian Louboutin, a French luxury designer, gave the 10-centimeter high heel a twist with his famous red-soled stiletto, a pair of which goes for around $870. Today's disappearing French high heel is explained in part by COVID-19 and the way working from home has spread les looks casuels. It may also mark a form of post-hashtag-me-too rebellion. A younger generation is turning against the stiletto's figure deforming nature, nodded to in the film Barbie. 
whose star's feet no longer fall flat when relieved of her heels. During the festive season, the high heel, or at least a block version of it, may be enjoying a revival, but this could be fleeting. On the French high street, the trend seems entrenched. Oh la la, non. That's over, says a Parisian shoe shop manager when asked if she sells many stilettos, waving at the limited range she has relegated to an upper shelf. Women want comfort, says an assistant at another store. What matters is that you can wear flat, chunky boots with an elegant dress and still be chic. Bartleby, our agony uncle returns. Max Flannel is back to grapple with your workplace headaches. Dear Max, I'm a 23-year-old social media marketer who has only recently been required to return to the office. I had been told that the office would be great for having water cooler conversations. My office does not seem to have a water cooler. What should I do? Now, you ask, I'm not really even sure what a water cooler is. But the basic idea is to find a place where you know colleagues are bound to do to go regularly and where you can engage in light conversation about whether they saw anything good on TV last night. My advice is to hang around any tap, and you should meet colleagues fairly regularly. I have just been promoted into a senior role. I have noticed that many of my new peers like to open meetings with small personal anecdotes about something that happened to them that day, a minor cycling accident, say, or a chance encounter with an old acquaintance. It seems to be a way of getting people to relax a bit. The trouble is that nothing interesting ever seems to happen to me. What should I do? I wouldn't worry too much. Those stories are mostly all made up and are deliberately boring. No executive ever opens a meeting talking about how they woke up in their own clothes, but in a total stranger's apartment. The goal is only to put people at their ease by making the speaker seem faintly human. Just say exactly what you put in your message above and then make your face go a bit vulnerable. That should do the trick. The meeting rooms in our offices have just been given new quirky names. All of them have different kinds of dips. I'm typing this in Baba Ganoush. My next meeting is in Terra Masalada. Am I alone in wanting to scream? This is a truly revolting trend. There are people walking around offices right now saying things like, Focaccia seems to be taken. Is Chiabata free? I'm in Yulan Batar. Where are you? And let's set up a projector in Nelson Mandela. You either sound totally idiotic or, as if you're suggesting something appalling, just describe the room you're referring to. The one where Mandy gave that terrible presentation, say, or the one where absolutely nothing works. I recently had a very disturbing thought. I don't feel like I am an imposter. Does that mean I actually am one? I'm afraid you've developed non-imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, the much more common condition, is the worry that you're not good enough to take on certain roles. If you own up to this feeling, you will almost certainly be told that you are way better than the people who blithely hold those roles now. If you have non-imposter syndrome, you start to wonder whether you are one of the people they mean, and therefore deeply incompetent. The only known cure for non-imposter syndrome is imposter syndrome. Whenever I go to the toilets, there's a new member of staff in there loitering by the wash basins. As I'm washing my hands, she asks me whether I've seen anything good on television recently. I've seen her doing the same thing to other people. Should I report her to HR? I think I know what's happened here. Leave this one with me. I often do Zoom calls from home. I recently tried out a new artificial intelligence tool that promises to automatically adjust my surroundings so that my home office looks more professional. In all the demos, it does things like remove dirty clothes and straighten books on shelves. But when I try it, it does none of that. All it does is remove me from view and fill in the background so it looks like the room is completely empty. What does this mean?
I called the people who made this tool and they've never heard of this kind of behavior before. We've looked at your photo on LinkedIn and we do all agree that the AI seems to be making exactly the right call. On the downside, we also seem to be closer to the singularity. I can never time my interjections correctly. If I try to judge when a speaker is about to stop talking, I either break in too early and end up apologizing for interrupting or am a beat too slow and someone else grabs the floor. Do you have any tips? There are only three ways to handle this common problem. One is to start so loudly that everyone immediately gives way. You may come up against a fellow shouter and then it's just a battle of nerves. Who's going to give way? The second is to raise your hand and wait. You'll get your turn eventually and be listened to. The third is to get promoted. If you are senior enough, it doesn't matter how ludicrous a point you're making. Everyone gives way. Keep sending me your problems and enjoy the break. Schumpeter, bello, buono e ben fatto. Why Europe keeps winning at luxury goods. At this year's holiday soirees, luxury bosses may be stingier than usual with the champagne. It's not been a sparkling six months for the industry, as well-heeled consumers from east to west have tempered the excesses of recent years. The S&P Global Luxury Index, which tracks the industry's performance, is down by 9% since the middle of the year. Still, the purveyors of splendor need not forgo the merrymaking altogether. The global market for personal luxury goods, from handbags to hot couture and horology, grew by 4% this year, reckons Bain, a consultancy. That is disappointing compared with 20% last year, but nothing to scoff at amid fears of a slowing global economy. The past two decades have been remarkable for the industry. Global sales have tripled to nearly $400 billion, thanks largely to a swelling of the ranks of crazy rich Asians. The biggest beneficiaries of the boom have been European companies. These account for around two-thirds of luxury goods sales, according to Deloitte, another consultancy, and nine of the world's ten most valuable luxury brands, according to Kantar, a market research firm. Bernard Arnault of LVMH, a European luxury Goliath, is the world's second richest man. The industry remains a rare bright spot for Europe at a time when the continent seems at risk of fading into economic and technological irrelevance. Why has it been so immune to foreign competition? Heritage is one explanation. Europe's luxury firms have ridden high on the world's continuing fascination with the old continent. It's home to seven of the ten most visited countries in the world. Tourists flock to Europe's historic cities to ogle its artworks, taste its local delicacies, and drink its fine wines. The rich and famous gather in the summer for lavish parties on the Riviera. In his book, Selling Europe to the World, Pierre-Yves Donzay, a business historian, argues that the ascendancy of European luxury is thanks to the powerful attraction of an idealized way of life, combining elegance, tradition, and hedonism. In an interview with the New York Times in 1996, Tom Ford, a famed American designer, gushed that Americans, unlike his compatriots, appreciate style. American fashion labels have struggled to break into the most exclusive end of the industry. Even America's pricier brands like Ralph Lauren concentrate on what insiders contemptuously call accessible luxury. In Asia, homegrown rivals have thrived mostly in categories like jewelry, China's Chow Tai Fook or India's Titan, and cosmetics, Japan's Shishido, where local tastes are more pronounced. 
Europe, meanwhile, has entrenched itself as the center of design and craftsmanship in the luxury business. Three of the big four fashion weeks take place in European capitals. New York, the exception, has valiantly tried to build a cluster of high-end fashion talent, with design tools to rival those of Milan or Paris. And yet it has lost top designers to European capitals, much as Europe has lost techies to Silicon Valley. As Mr. Ford saw it, if I was ever going to become a good designer, I had to leave America. Hobnobbing with other fashionistas is not the only advantage on offer in Europe. The continent is doted with artisanal workshops that have for decades catered to the exacting standards of the luxury industry. Hermes handbags, some of which sell for upwards of $10,000, are produced by experienced craftsmen who can spend 20 hours or more on one bag. Over decades, the continent has developed specialized clusters of production, from watchmaking in the Jura Arc of Switzerland to shoemaking in the Veneto region of Italy, where techniques are handed down over generations through specialist schools and coveted apprenticeships. Europe's luxury champions deserve credit, too, for pursuing strategies that have reinforced their dominance of the industry. They have been steadily buying stakes in their suppliers, giving them a competitive edge through greater control of production, notes Tomai Sideri of New York University's Stern Business School. In May, Chanel and Brunello Cuccinelli, two luxury houses, bought a joint 49% stake in Cariaggi Lamificio, an Italian cashmere supplier. Vertical integration in the industry has stretched all the way back to alligator farms in Louisiana and sheep stations in Australia. It has also extended in the other direction, into distribution, with luxury firms increasingly opting to sell directly to shoppers through their own swanky stores, rather than entrusting the customer experience to others. All that has required plenty of capital, which helps explain the parallel trend towards horizontal integration in the industry. LVMH now houses 75 luxury brands. Although those mostly operate autonomously, the model provides economies of scale in areas like marketing and back office functions. It also gives the group the financial firepower to invest in prime real estate. In July, LVMH bought the building on the Champs-Élysées that houses its Louis Vuitton flagship store. Swatch, which owns watch brands from Blancpain to Omega, controls a portfolio of component suppliers, too. The conglomerate model also helps to lure in top talent by offering opportunities for designers and craftsmen to move between brands, notes Stefani Saviolo of Bocconi University. Continental Drift Enthusiasm for horizontal integration among European luxury firms has not been universal. Early in the 2010s, Hermes fended off a takeover attempt by LVMH. It has done just fine on its own. Its shares have outperformed LVMH's by more than half over the past five years. Other independent luxury brands, however, have struggled to keep up. That is especially so for Italian firms, which account for 23% of luxury's 100 largest businesses, but only 8% of their combined sales, according to Deloitte. Many of these are multi-generational family businesses that have balked at joining forces with old rivals. If they are to maintain their position at the ritziest end of luxury, they may need to swallow their pride. Well, that is all the time we have for today. This has been Libby Ash with The Economist. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.